Welcome to episode 13 of the Digital Guardian podcast. My name is Will Gragido. I am the Director of Advanced Threat Protections here at Digital Guardian. And then joining me today is Mr. Thomas Fisher. Thomas, why don't you take a moment to introduce yourself? Hello, everybody. Good evening from London. And I'm Thomas Fisher. I'm a Global Security Advocate for Digital Guardian. And joining us today is our very special guest, Mr. Adrian Sanabria. Adrian is the co-founder and director of research at Savage Security. Adrian, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. And I think this is one of the first times I've been introduced in, in years where someone didn't even ask how to pronounce my name. So kudos. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, well, I, I kind of pride myself in that because my name is, is oftentimes, you know, somewhat of a Rubik's Cube for people as well. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I listened to uh, your show with Alex Pinto, and when you said your name, I think that's the first time I've heard your name pronounced the way it's pronounced, which was not how it's pronounced in my head. That's all right. Yeah, yeah, I understand. It's very rarely pronounced in uh, in people's heads the way I pronounce it. So, yeah, but, point of fact. It's kind of interesting, a little trivia bit. So, Adrian, why don't you give us a minute and tell us about what you're doing with Savage? We know you, of course, from a previous life from the Four Five One Group. What are you doing over at Savage? What's new and exciting in your world? And then we'll jump right into what we're going to talk to talk about today. Sure. Yeah, so Savage Security was something that, that had really started forming in my mind years and years ago. But working at 451 Research, you know, and getting to understand the business side of the industry, having the luxury is how I like to say it. Having the luxury of getting to look at securities problems from a high-level view and also having the luxury of, of getting to call up CTOs, founders, entrepreneurs, you know, executives at, at, at some of these vendors and, you know, talk to some very accomplished, you know, very skilled people in enterprises and get their opinions on all these problems really brought me to a point where, you know, I had a business idea in my head of, you know, how I could do more to both help the industry and kind of get some of these ideas out of my head. I'm one of those guys, uh, I, I'm a dreamer, an idea guy, you know, in the Myers-Briggs, I'm, I'm all the way in that corner, which is why this is something I couldn't do without a partner. And uh, Kyle Bupp, my, my partner, when we started talking about starting a business together, that's when I knew I could actually do it because I, I knew if it were just me, you know, I, I, I probably would have trouble focusing on things like making money and revenue. So it's good that we... We linked up there. But I'm using the combination of my past experience, and we're just kind of combining all that together. And, and the ultimate goal of Savage Security is to make it simpler, easier, and cheaper to defend the enterprise. We think a lot of the solutions out there are, you know, just overcomplicated. I don't want to go as far as to say unnecessary, you know, but there are, you know, we've seen easier ways. You know, we've talked to a lot of people and you know, we've done a lot of it ourselves where, you know, we, we know there's easier ways to defend the enterprise and and to, to be in a, a more comfortable position defending. Whereas I, I think the narrative out there is that, you know, it's all hopeless. You know, everybody's hacked whether they know it or not. And everybody's going to be hacked. And, and we're specifically kind of fighting against that. So we're doing services for enterprises. We have subscription services. You get so many hours a month. You can use us for whatever. You know, if, if you need somebody to do a POC, you don't have time to do it, we can do it for you. If you have an incident, you can call us in for that. You can just use those hours for whatever. But then we're also covering the vendor side of the industry. You know, so looking at new markets, new startups that pop up, covering that. 
helping vendors improve their products um, and make it better from that side. So we're kind of, we're working both sides of the aisle there. And then our own research, which is, you know, what I'm most excited about is we, a lot of these projects that I have to set to the side because my day job has always been focused somewhere else. You know, now some of that, some of that core research that I, I think the industry really needs to have done, you know, is something we can focus on and can actually be a revenue stream for us. Thanks, Andrew. That's, that's interesting. I actually want to come back to one of the things that you said that about the industry or, or let's just say the, the community thinking that defending an enterprise is hard. You know, I, I tend to agree with you to a certain extent that we overthink the problem. Do you think that's because of a form of technical debt or security debt that we've incurred? Or do you think it's just because we've vendors have been piling on solutions and trying to sell us solutions for years and, and we're sitting here with, with a mass of solutions that we don't really understand how to use properly or how they fit together? Yeah, I think the latter is a big one. You know, I, I think with marketing, you know, the, the business of security really gets in the way of solving some of these security problems. And it's not that there's any conspiracy or anything like that. You know, companies are, are trying to leave you dependent on, on their products. It's just the way business works and the way the tip, typical, you know, technical mind works. You know, we're, we're very distractible. You know, we, we pay way too much attention to the news of the day to the uh, threat of the day, you know, and, and sometimes that's, you know, it's valid. You know, we do need to watch that. But a lot of that stuff is is really just noise. You know, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of research that comes out. It's really what I call, you know, more academic research where, you know, no no attacker would ever use this stuff. You know, it's, it's overcomplicated. You know, there are easier ways to do it. You know, it's like the XKCD comic says, or is that XKCD or no, that's... Um, trying to remember the name of it, breakfast morning cereal, Saturday breakfast morning cereal, mm. where it says, no, that is XKCD. Hit, hit him with a hammer instead of, you know, cracking the encryption. Yeah, yeah. No, that's XKCD. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so, hit him until he gives you the password or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, and I think one of the problems there is if you go into an environment and you say, okay, point at your most valuable security product, point that out to me. You know, or, or, you know, how, how much value do you get out of that security product? You know, generally people can't, can't really tell you, you know, or, you know, as a thought exercise, something I like to throw out there is say you just, you turn off all your security controls right now, you know, which one is going to fail first, how quickly, you know, and, and what's that going to look like? You know, and generally, I, I mean, you should know exactly how your systems fail, you know, you should know the threats against them. You should know how well some of these controls and products do against them. And I remember last fall listening to a podcast where another X451 guy, Nick, I'm blanking on his last name right now, you know, but Nick was on a podcast talking about incident response he did. And they knew they had an incident. You know, it was ransomware. So it was obvious that they had the incident. So they're calling up their managed service provider to just get logs from them. He said, oh, hey, we know we've got an incident. We just want to see what you guys are seeing. And, you know, long story short, it comes out that they didn't see anything because for the last three years, the, the, this IDS box had been plugged into the wrong port on the switch, you know, and, and, and was 
not entirely blind, but, you know, only seeing five systems instead of, you know, 2,000 or whatever it was supposed to be seeing. So the fact that we don't even have functional level validation that our products are working is worrisome, you know, and it's, you know, the, the functional testing is not a hard job at all. In some cases, it's, you know, download this file, see if we get an alert, you know, send myself this uh, spreadsheet full of credit card numbers, see if it gets stopped, yeah. you know, things like that. But we're not doing that, you know, so we, we really don't know in a lot of cases how well our products are working, you know, and that, that's one of our key focuses at, at Savage Security is to come up with practical techniques to, to test that and, and metrics that actually show us if we're getting better. Do you think that's related to the, to the project methodologies that we use? in the industry today or, or, you know, some of the standard ways that, that we, we tend to deploy, deploy solutions. I mean, I, you know, I spent some time with, with companies like Capgemini and, and SEMA in the past. And, and, you know, there was, I mean, that the whole process of doing, building solutions out was, was minute. And you had this whole project methodology with functional testing, you know, QA, a whole bunch of logical testing as well and technical testing, are we missing something in that or is it just that we run out of time? We're so eager to put in that new solution that we right. just, you know, we kind of miss a step or we just, we yeah. just browse over something that's completely obvious, but we want, we ignore it because we just don't have the time. Well, so there's functional testing, you know, and then there's the, the actual efficacy, you know, so there's, you know, yes, it catches ICAR, but does it catch, you know, WannaCry or the next iteration of that? So, you know, obviously the functional testing is a simpler task, you know, so where we need to get is, is the efficacy testing. Okay, you know, is, is this going to, you know, stop the next big threat? And some of that, you know, I do think it's valid for us to create our own threats, you know, for, for testing these systems. You know, if we can think it up, they can think it up. And we've already seen that they, they borrow our code as well, you know, researcher code. In fact, that's been in the news quite a bit lately. And I just don't see a whole lot of that. I, I do talk to people every now and then that believe heavily in that. And then I see organizations that, that have never even thought of it. You know, so there, there's a wide range, you know, a big disconnect there. You know, and I think a lot of the things that carry value, you know, maybe don't seem that valuable to other people, even if they're aware of it. So I, I, I think we really need to champion that more. You know, we, we, we tend to champion new techniques and things like that, but not the less exciting stuff that works well, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, so is, is it safe to say then, Adrian, that you think that there's a, uh, we used to kind of refer to it as FUD, right? You know, kind mm-hmm. of colloquial, colloquially several years ago, right? But there's a, there's a great deal, perhaps even more so than there was previously, of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, which isn't necessarily a, a bad thing to have in you know in measured, you know metered doses. But do you think it's 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 relatively out of control today in the industry? Have we kind of have have we as as practitioners and as consumers of technology, and perhaps even as pro- professionals, you know, succumb once more to the idea that to your point that it's hopeless. And I see that a lot myself in conversations with people in various forums. It, you know, we're, we're up against a, you know, an unfathomable amount of adversarial activity and that we can't necessarily 
close those gaps or shore things up. Do you see that as being the case or what's your thoughts on that? So I, I think FUD, you know, just the nature of FUD, we see mostly disappear if we're doing the due diligence that needs to be done. And this isn't, you know, I'm not saying that this needs to be done and I don't think it should be done. I think it's inefficient for it to be done organization by organization. Everybody doesn't need somebody on staff with the skill necessary to, you know, to take something that might be FUD and validate it. I do think we need to do that at the community level and, and the industry level. So that that's something I spent a lot of time thinking about. And what I concluded is that it's rarely in a business's best interest to do that. And I think that's part of our problem is, is in a lot of cases, we're waiting for the industry to do that when it's actually something that, you know, the community needs to come together and do. And maybe business is still a part of that. You know, we've seen a lot of businesses support some really good community efforts. And, you know, I think they can be, they can be part of that. But ultimately, you know, we, we need a better knowledge basis. You know, we're starting to see that now. We're starting to see, like I, I talked to the, the guys at MITRE that do the MITRE attack stuff. You know, this is one of the things we've considered doing here at Savage Security, launching some of these community projects. But I really don't want to create something if, you know, better repository already exists. You know, and it's probably not Wikipedia. Maybe it's MITRE. But I, I don't really want it to have a Savage Security name on it. You know, I, I want this to, you know, supersede our business. And, you know, we're, you know, like I mentioned, we're just two guys. so. Clearly, it can't be just a savage thing. So, you know, I want I want it to be something that gets used and gets contributed to, you know, and, and a lot of it's just these simple things like how do I test product X and make sure it's working correctly, you know, and then take a step beyond that, make sure it's it's going to stop ransomware, say, you know, and, and that's, you know, one of the things that it's really out there. You know, maybe you have to go across seven, nine, 13 blogs to compile it all together. But just a list of everything ransomware has to do to be successful. You know, and you go down that list and, uh, you know, okay, as a defender, what can I do that's not going to disrupt my users to defend against that? So just as an example, you know, that that's something we really need to be in the knowledge base, to be in a library somewhere. You know, I like to say that we need more librarians in InfoSec, you know, people actually curating, you know, getting this knowledge out of blogs, out of black hat talks and research papers and stuff like that, and getting it into some kind of format that's searchable, browsable, even to the point where, you know, download a snort file and import it, you know, based on this, on this knowledge base where, you know, it gets turned into some kind of threat intelligence stream. I, I like to call it defensive intelligence. Right, I'm not gonna say there's been initiatives like this before, but I mean, one of the one of the issues that I've always had, and you know, when I was in in the enterprise security side, not on the vendor side, is that the, the taxonomy differs so much between different vendors and different yeah. products and different categories of of solutions. Right, so I mean, even even in the the endpoint space, I mean, when you look at some of the definitions that they have for for some of the attacks or some of the uh, you know, just simple malware. I mean, if you if you just mm-hmm. look up a malware in in VirusTotal, it's like I think every vendor has a different name for it. And yeah, 
when you're talking about that kind of a database or you know, a kind of rep- repository, it's going to be very hard to search, very hard to actually build in a, in a sensible way if we don't have a common taxonomy. Do you, I mean, do you think we need to build that kind of uh, – would that be a first step for you in, in your mind? Would we build a, a kind of taxonomy to be able to, to actually talk properly about this stuff and to be able to share correctly? Well, I, th- I think some of that has been done. You know, if, if you look at the, you know, so, some of what MITRE has done there, you know, they've, you know, the, the names of malware, you know, that that's that's one thing, you know, but when we start talking about defensive intelligence, you know, and with most of this being Windows, Windows is still overwhelmingly, you know, the major target and the major issue where, where malware is concerned. You know, we're we're more talking about, components of the operating system, you know, something tries to use vssadmin.exe to delete your snapshots. You know, that that's pretty universal. You know, there's there's nothing else you can call that except, you know, your your snapshots getting deleted. So, I think that's less of a problem there, you know, that, so on the threat intelligence side, you know, I th- I think that is a bigger problem. And in the industry in general, I think taxonomy is is a huge issue, you know, where you know, you ask three different people, you know, what their definition of, of APT is or, or next-gen AV or something like that, you get you get different answers. And I just found out about three new Gartner categories this week that I need to <laughs> read up on and understand because people are already using the acronyms as if I'm, I'm just going to know what that means. Yeah. Security Week, they were that they'd have that mm-hmm. startup weekly podcast that was the focus of th- this this week was the focus of categories and and the startups and categories and the what category your products f- fall into and it was right it's, it's quite a good it's quite a good listen to because i they talk about the difference of some startups creating their own categories because they're they think they're in a new space but right uh, that's a different problem right and, and and that that is a problem that we tackle as well and we actually have Hoping the beta of this product will be out this fall. We're on track to to have it out, but we're going to have a subscription product that's basically a vendor and product database. You know where you can actually go down to the feature level. You know, do a search for for what you need in a product. You know, and we'll show you different products. You know that can that have that feature built into them. You know, whatever you need, whatever you're looking for, and I, I think that'll help a lot of people understand how these products are categorized because ultimately if you look at them down at the feature level it becomes much easier to categorize them you know when you look at at feature commonality but it's very very difficult in this industry to do that because in some cases you know it's tough to even get a copy of the product you know to actually get your hands on it to to see what the features are close up so yeah, it's a challenge. Some of them, you know, everything you need is out on the website. And and in some of the cases, you know, you have to have somebody actually hand you a license for you to even figure out what the product does. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's something we're, we're trying to tackle. And it's, I think that's every analyst's or should be every analyst's job is is to clarify what's going on in the market, what these products do. Yeah, it's an interesting point, right? Because... I think oftentimes, you know, people, the consumer feels confused, right? There's a lack of clarity. Oftentimes? Uh, well, you know, I, I'm trying to be balanced <laughs> here. You know, trying to be balanced, you know. Uh, 
But I think oftentimes there's a, there's a lack of clarity, right? And there's there's a, there's more than a bit of confusion, especially when we start blurring the lines between capability, compatibility, efficacy. I know you and I have talked before on our feelings with respect to percentage of effort, efficacy against threat families, in particular forms of malware, malicious code, exploit kits, things of that nature. And just using terminology that isn't necessarily, I want to say, unscientific, but that's certainly not concrete, right? So it's a, it's a little nebulous. So are, are you suggesting that perhaps we need to simplify our messaging, simplify in, in, in the, through, through better synthesis of data, what it is we're working on, and then ultimately speaking, provide you know a, a more of a WYSIWYG format for, for buyers? If you are, I agree with you. I, I think that that's, at the end of the day, that, that's what separates, I think, uh, a solution provider, whether it's a technology or a service provider who is competent and, and delivering something that's meaningful and impactful to the market versus someone who's selling something that's, that's a little less baked. You know, I don't know about WYSIWYG, but but yeah, no, that that's a good description of what we're trying to do. You know, in, in a lot of these cases, you know, you just have that moment, you know, when you see the product in a demo, you realize what the product does, you know, and, and once I've gotten that far, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, I can explain this to pretty much anybody, you know, but I had to sit through, you know, so much of a demo or something like that to be able to get to that point. In some cases, vendors don't even know what they have. Like they, they show it to you, they say, here are the use cases. And after they're done showing it to you, you know, I'm like, holy crap, this can be used for all this other stuff, you know, that they hadn't even even considered. You know, so in some of these cases, they really are, you know, we do see new categories. In fact, I give a talk locally. I've never given it at a, at a large event, but at local events, I, I give a talk called 10 Security Categories You've Never Heard Of. And in each category, I have at least 10 vendors. And I asked the crowd to raise up their hand if they've ever recognize the names of any of the categories or any of the vendors. And I, I've yet to have a single hand raised up. So, mm. and I think the stats from when I was at 451 were that we see five new categories every six months in the security industry. And I forget something like nine new vendors a month, something like that. Quite interesting. Well, if you're okay, I, I want to bring it back towards the yeah, please. What we were talking, what we were talking about the multiple products and different products. Adrian, I'm sure you're aware of the move, especially Microsoft and Apple have been doing this for years, but of you know sandboxing the kernel and building more worlds within the kernel, making it harder for some of these solutions to actually embed. Well, at least the endpoint solutions to embed themselves into the into the right. operating system. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think this is going to improve our situation in terms of what we were talking about earlier about having too many solutions and and misconfigurations and and you know. A functional missing the functional testing aspects, or do you think this is just going to complicate our situation even more? No, no, I, I think it is the the right direction to move in. I think at one time you really could say, okay, Windows get, is getting hacked because it is the business operating system. You know that this is what businesses use. This is what they have on all their computers. That's where the profit in you know cybercrime is. You know, so that's that's what's getting attacked. You know, and and Mac wasn't getting attacked because it had less, you know, simply because it had less market share. You know, I think at one point in time, you could say that. I think at this point, it is more because Windows is an easier target or has been an easier target, you know, and it, it tends to last a lot longer. You know, we see people using versions of Windows 
far beyond any other operating system, you know, at least in the, in the consumer space. So yeah, Windows XP just lasted forever and it, and it's still functional and usable today, which is, which is still out there. (laughs) Yeah. For, for Microsoft. So yeah, at this point, I I think if you look at Windows 10 S, you know, the, the whole, uh, the major difference with S is that y- you now have a choke point through which you get your applications, you know, which is the whole App Store model. You know, Mac OS did that a while ago. Android and iOS have done that from the beginning. And generally, most of the time when you hear about Android having ransomware or iOS having viruses and Trojans and things like that, you know, you don't have to read far through the story until you see, but only when people were using jailbroken devices or, you know, downloading, yeah, yeah, basically pirated versions of paid apps from shady app stores, right? So what that tells me is that model works pretty well, you know, and I think even today, you know, it is, well, especially today, it's, it's pretty difficult to get a mobile device hacked. You know, you, you have to make a lot of mistakes and generally there's got to be an element of social engineering in there. You know, that's, that's why the bounties are so high for remotely exploitable vulnerabilities in these operating yeah. systems. So I think that's the right direction to, to move in. But something else I like to point out a lot is that when we solve a problem, we close a door and the attackers don't just give up and you know, go legitimate, you know, get regular jobs, it's going to open another door. And we have to consider that. So it's a, it's a problem in the security industry that I've, I've observed over the years that I liken to playing a game of leapfrog when the game is actually chess that we're playing. You know, so the, the problem is, you know, we'll solve one thing. We won't think about the, the next lowest hanging fruit, and we're just sitting ducks for that. I think IoT devices, you know, the Mirai botnet is an excellent example of that. How long did those systems sit out there with default credentials on SSH or Telnet just waiting to be scooped up and turned into a botnet? You know, years, decades? You know, I think in some cases, those devices were out there and completely vulnerable, you know, just out there for the taking, you know, for, for a really, really long time. I mean, that's, that's a different can of worms because, I mean, I won't go into the problems of updating Windows for some users, but if you think about those IoT devices, a lot of those IoT devices are stuck in a state where updating them or changing them is very difficult. And we're, we're distributing some of those things to, to, you know, everyday people that don't necessarily have the technical capabilities of changing that password if you can actually change the password, right? So, I mean, that that there's a whole we're, we're talking about a whole complete different thing and sure. it, it, it comes into line with what you're saying is that you know we, we might be closing one door but on the other side we we just missed something or we, we're not looking at you know our defense on the other side right or if you reference back to your chess game you might have opened the you know you might have closed the door on your king but you've opened the door and you've, you've left your queen vulnerable right right so, and so, and yeah. it, it, it does apply to you know the the whole anti-malware endpoint windows situation as well. I, you know, just look at Tavis Ormandy and where a lot of his successes come from. 
You know, I, I, I'd argue a lot of it comes from being really creative in where he decides to search for bugs, right? You know, not, not necessarily that he's just the best bug hunter ever. It's just that, you know, maybe nobody thought to look at the actual AV engine, you know, and the components right. in that. And, oh, hey, look, AV vendor X is using a seven-year-old unpacker with lots and lots of vulnerabilities. You know, they've just never bothered to update it. Yeah, we're using a very, very old seven zip library, right? And that I think that's the same exact example. You know, it's been sitting out there. You know, they, these these are old bugs. You know that yeah. have, that have been out there for a while. And when we make it more difficult for the attackers, or we close a door on them, you know, we have to realize we are actively pushing them in another direction, and we have to be prepared for that. I mean, you, you raise a good point. It's like third-party tools, right? I mean, we're back to that. Are we introducing vulnerabilities by adding on top additional software on top of if we, right. if we, if we go back to Windows, right? I mean, are we adding additional so- additional software that's opening another hole? And you know, we see this all the time. I mean, web you know web servers hack because X Y Z library wasn't done properly, or or you know the people claiming that TLS is broken because one open SSL library has one semicolon in the wrong place <laughs> right you know where the sky is falling Internet's, yeah i mean it, yeah. it's back to what you were talking I about can't earlier tell you how many times ssl <laughs> has been hopelessly broken and just everything was falling apart yeah oh yeah don't, i mean don't get me started because it's it's just like it's only the ssl part that's broken but suddenly the whole pki infrastructure system is completely broken and obsolete yeah. it's so like how did you get gosh, there get rid of it it's no good <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to use Tor for everything. Oh, there was a question in there somewhere. If I go back to my question. So if when we're introducing the third party libraries, do you think there's a solution for us to come up with a way to validate that that's not introducing additional bugs or additional uh, those additional yeah. backdoors that, we could, that, that an attacker could use, a creative attacker could use? Yeah, so you know, two things we can do there. I, I, I think one is that due diligence is a huge unsolved problem. You know, we're constantly throwing new code into our environments with zero due diligence. You know, we, we don't know where it's coming from. You know, we I mean we might install a single software package that includes code from seven different places. You know, I forget what the stats are, but you know, the, it's usually the majority of code in an application whether that's a mobile application or, you know, a, a business web app application tend to be written by a third party, you know, and, the, and I think the minority most of the time now is the actual custom in-house written code. And it, it's a big problem and it's, it's difficult to do that. And even at the product level, you know, when you get a piece of hardware, you know, you've got code at, you know, in on several different levels, you know, you've got the firmware level, you know, and then the application level on a lot of IoT devices and, you know, things that we're, we're bringing into enterprises now. So due diligence, we've got to find some way to solve that, you know, and, and I think if we just, you know, if they made a law saying that the, these products have to go through some kind of third-party due diligence today, you know, we, we wouldn't have 1% of the resources to take care of that problem. You know, I mean, there, there are organizations out there, but, so much code gets generated. Yeah, so that that's due diligence is one side of it. 
<laughs> I'm looking for my other my other point I had queued up there. Yeah, refresh my memory on where we were going with this. <laughs> Just, we were talking about how do you how do you ensure that third party tools or third party libraries that you're using inside right. in, in the products that you're that you're introducing into Windows could oh right right could not would not introduce an additional backdoor. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the other, the other side of my point was, was just, you know, getting rid of all the extra attack surface that we don't need. You know, I think almost everything out of the box comes with features enabled that we're never going to use, you know, perhaps even come with libraries, you know, that are never going to get used. You know, I've seen some research done there on, on Docker containers where you see these huge monolithic Docker containers, you know, they're just completely missing the point of, of Docker. That's even a market out there. You know, it's a market that looks at your Docker container at runtime and strips out all the stuff that you're not using, you know, because it actually looks at, okay, what libraries are getting used, what executables are getting used, you know, config files, all, all that stuff. And if there's, I'm not sure if it's at the package level or at what level it is and exactly how it does it. But it, you know, disables, turns off, strips out all the stuff you're not using, which I think is is also huge, you know. And it's the, the average person, the average company, just doesn't have the time or resources to go through the CIS hardening guide on everything that they own, and to, and to strip out all this extra tax surface. That's another side of it. Yeah, there's a lot of third party stuff, and 75% of it we're never going to use, but it's sitting there making it easier to to attack. Yeah, that's an interesting point, right? So when you talk about hardening, right? You know, years ago when I when I came out of the military, you know, I worked for consultancies in a variety of capacities, predominantly, you know, vulnerability testing, penetration testing, assessment work, red teaming, that kind of thing before I went into the vendor space. But, you know, hardening, right? You know, just best practices as it, as it related to vulnerability and you know discovery and analysis and and, mitig- and remediation was always a challenge right because you have the arguments about patch management and all these things right so is it your opinion then perhaps that that vendors need to go through even more exhaustive pre-release vetting and verification of their product I'll go as far as to say deeper more intense vulnerability analysis work and then subsequent remediation prior to launching product in order to gain back perhaps some of that trust and some of the fatigue and, and maybe alleviate some of the, the fatigue and potential concerns that the buying public has. I think at least there needs to be more transparency, you know, because right now, you know, from my standpoint, you know, I'm putting together buyer's guides on, on portions of the market here and, and reviewing products. That's one of the things I'm really excited about doing here. And on the consumer side, on the enterprise, you know, generally you don't see a lot of transparency about whether or not any kind of third-party review or any kind of QA has been done at all. And and you've got stuff that's had just, you know, almost no QA whatsoever, you know, and, and even at the design level, you know, I've some of my due diligence in the past, I ran across a device that worked kind of like a Meraki, where it was wireless access points you would control from the cloud. You know, so the configurations actually sat on a server somewhere, and when the device boots up, it sends a call out, gets its config file. And the entire process of how it did that was as insecure as could possibly be, you know, and they had to go back to the drawing board, you know, architecturally to 
redo how that whole thing works, how the device authenticates itself to get the config, how that config is actually delivered to the device. So, you know, we're seeing stuff at that level. It's not, it's not that, oh, we're using an old library. It's that you need to go back to the drawing board and how your product functions. You know, it's that, it's, it's that broken. But from the outside, there's no, you know, United Laboratory stamp. There's nothing to tell you that it's gone through any kind of due diligence or testing, you know, to, to ensure you that it's, it's not just immediately going to get hacked around yeah. when you, yeah. when you plug it in and, and turn it on. I know that Mudge, when he went to, to DARPA, that was mm-hmm. one of the things he was working on, right? Was kind of crafting. They were, and they were actually, you know, they actually were basing it off of the underwriters laboratory, which headquarters is actually about 30 minutes from my house. Uh, they're actually basing it on that model for security technology or for broader I think it was going to start with security technology and then kind of work more broadly toward internet, you know, connected technologies. Because you're right, there's no fundamental baseline criteria that says, you know, you need to meet this level of yeah. <laughs> you know, percentages of vulnerabilities, you know, I, you know, or whatever the criteria is before it ships out the door. And that's a really interesting point. And it's, a, it's an important one to make. I think that's changing though, Will, because if we look at some of the initiatives that are coming out, I mean, on your guy's side in the, from your government, plus some of the stuff that's being done in Europe and UK around, well, specifically IoT devices, when you think about IoT devices, because some of them now are connected to critical, not critical infrastructure, right? So there is a drive to standard, to at least put into place legislation that would force vendors to adopt safer practices. So I don't. I think we're going down the right road. It's just a, how long is it going to take? Right. Well, and all the stuff that's already out there with a twenty, thirty, forty year life cycle. How long is it going to take before you know we get rid of the stuff that that's never been held to any kind of standard? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, considering the fact that like you know you brought up ransomware earlier, and it made me think of earlier this year, right, with WannaCry, which was really you know based on WannaCrypt, but right, the underlying story there was the exploitation of. The long, you know, the long in the tooth SMV version one vulnerability that Microsoft hadn't, you know, for whatever reason, acknowledged and patched. And then we look at the what it made me think about that was that the population of machines that were most impacted by that. And we're not talking about like Windows 10 boxes. We're talking about like Windows 7 and earlier versions of operating systems. So mm-hmm. it's to your point. We we have this. We definitely do push and extend, perhaps even to the point of pain the longevity of the, the devices and the operating systems that support those devices. And perhaps uh, that's to our own detriment. Now, as consumers, it makes sense because we want to get as much money, as much bang for the buck, right? We want to get out, get as much out of that money that we spend as we possibly can. But perhaps, perhaps that's, that's, that's not necessarily the best way to approach things. And conversely for vendors, obviously, you know, they need, there needs to be some gr- a greater degree of emphasis. And I'm not trying to indict Microsoft at all. They, they've done a phenomenal job in the last 12 years or so really stepping up their game with regards to vulnerability identification and mitigation. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you know, patching can't be the answer. You know, I, I, I think we've, you know, there's an endless list of examples of, of why different situations where you're just not going to be able to update software, you're not going to be able to install a patch. You need some other option, you know, and some percentage of your, of your stuff. Sure. You, you can always get that patch out. Maybe you can even get it out quickly. Maybe you can even get it out quickly enough. You know, we've seen data that says, you know, if you haven't patched by day three, don't even bother. You know, it's too late at that point. You know, if you're going to get hacked, you know, it's 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 going to get taken advantage of. And then data says, you know, before the patch comes out, 
that's actually when we see the bulk of stuff getting compromised. You know, so clearly, whether the patch is out or not, there are situations where we can't depend on that as a defensive control. Sure, it's part of hygiene. We should always do it when we can do it, as soon as we can do it. But we shouldn't regard it or look at it as a defensive control. So I think we need to spend more time. I don't know if it's going to be virtual patching, you know, or what the what the answer is there. You know, clearly, if the patch isn't even out yet, you can't build a virtual patch if you don't have the information you need to to do that. So the answer is probably, you know, again with you know, the old defense in depth, you know, multiple layers of, of different ways that we can detect and, and prevent attacks, right. you know, and, and when we're talking about endpoint security and most attacks, I think a lot of it does come down to recognizing malicious behavior and acting on that. Right. Yeah. And, and there's the other problem too that I see is if we, if we go back to some of the more of the contained devices, right? So so those little black boxes that people are deploying is how, how do you actually know where they are, who has them, and how do you push out that kind of update? You know, I mean, Adrian mentioned it earlier, right? It's it, there's fundamental architecture issues, and how do you validate that you're getting the right update? I mean, remember Netgear? They that happened to Netgear, right? They they had a flaw and was it the NTP server and everything, or or something like that, and they were basically the update was being pulled from the wrong place, but. And then there's also the aspect of some devices just can't be updated, or they can't be updated in the in the in a proper time. So yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm with you right. there, Adrian. We need we need to have a more defense in depth attitude and look at okay, this vulnerability is that well, well, just for the lack of saying anything else, but this vulnerability is out. This is potentially how it works. You know, we need to build defenses around that. We need to. We need to understand what's going on and what we need to put into place. I mean, that was even in t- just in terms of monitoring. I had this discussion a few, a few weeks ago with, with a telecom provider. We were talking about Mirai, and it was exactly that. It's like you just can't update a lot of those routers because it's just they're not focused to, to, to be able to be updated. So their position was we need to find a way to contain and control and monitor to see where it's sparking up so that we can put into place the right controls or put into place the right controls because we know we're being affected. Right. And in most of those cases, it was just a configuration change that was needed anyway. It was a bad default configuration where, you know, I think very few of those devices needed to be open to the internet and have default credentials on them in the first place. So it's not even a question of updated firmware in that case, unless you're just talking about the, you know, the default config that that comes out of that that software I was, update. I was just talking in general, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, uh, to be yeah. honest, I was just talking in general and, and sliding off into an example case. But I mean, <laughs> I agree with you. It's like you need to understand what you're facing and you need to apply the pro- the appropriate controls yeah. or remediations, right? I mean, it's not – we can't rely on, on – I don't see updating as a, as a reliable situation. And I, I know some industries where they basically say, no, you're not coming to update our equipment because last time you tried to update our equipment, you're, the guy who came to update it had a, had a malware on his machine and it brought down our, inf- our, our production system. So, no, you're not doing right. it. <laughs> it stays hey, as is. But, hey. but, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> no, you. No, yeah. yeah t- taking that, you know, Mirai example again. You know, one of the. I had a lot of conversations around that. I did my own research on it. You know, I was scanning the internet, stuff like that. And you know, 
talking to a lot of people at the large telcos and stuff like that saying, hey, you know what? You guys know where the attacks are coming from. You've got lists of hosts that you're seeing attack traffic from, you know, and, and you know it's Mirai. And, you know, why, why isn't there a relationship between, you know, why isn't that part of the ISP peering relationship here? You know, if I'm Telstra and level three is sending me, you know, a terabyte of Mirai attack traffic, if I were Telstra, I'd be like, hey, level three, you know, why aren't you filtering this out? Why aren't you, why aren't you blocking this? You know, and I, I know there's some, you know, technical, you know, legal, I mean, they're different countries, political issues that you have to wade through for that. But, you know, it really does seem like it's, it's in everybody's interest, you know, at the ISP level to, to stop some of what is obviously malicious traffic. Yeah, that's a great, I think, guys, it's been a really great conversation. Unfortunately, I think I need to stop us right here. We need to do our wrap up. It's been, I think we could probably go on for another hour. Oh, there's, a lot more to, there's a lot love, more to talk love, about. Yeah, I love chatting with Adrian. It's, it's, yeah. it's fun. There's a lot more to talk about. And I think what I'd like to propose is, Adrian, is that if you're open to it at a later point in time, have you back on. Sure. So we can talk more about the evolution of Endpoint, where you see that going. You did a lot of really great work while you were at uh, the 451 that kind of talked about that evolution. And unfortunately, we really didn't get a chance to delve too deeply into that. But uh, I will hold you to having you back on so we can talk more about that to get your thoughts on the changes that are occurring within within the landscape and what we're seeing with regards to subsumption and consumption uh, and kind of the the, re, the trend toward re, re-merging and coupling yeah. multifunctionality capabilities into endpoints. But for the moment, I want to take the time to say thank you again for joining us. We wish you and, and Savage Security the best of luck. You're a friend of the show. Hey, that's pretty cool to say. And a friend of Digital Guardian. And I think uh, it's been great having you on. Thomas, anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, it's been great. It was very interesting insight into into things that are going on today. And yeah, well, best of luck. Yeah. And with that in mind, this has been episode 13 of the Digital Guardian podcast. Joining us today was Mr. Adrian Sanabria, co-founder and Director of Research for Savage Security. If you need any information with respect to Adrian or his organization, you can see our website for some information on that. As always, I'm Will Gradgeto, and with me is Mr. Thomas Fisher. Join us later in the month, the month of September, for episode 14, where we will be hosting Mr. Andrew Hay, a former co-worker, I believe, of, of Adrian's. And we'll be getting some uh, some insights into what's going on with respect to Andrew and his adventures as a CISO for uh, Leo Security. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Bye, everybody. Bye.